Good morning, church. So very good to see you this morning. One of the things that I love the most about this church family is that we put a lot of emphasis on family, on parents raising kids, on marriages, on grandparents and aunts and uncles, and, and that relationship that we all have with one another. And I, that's why I so appreciate the family conference that we had yesterday and all those that made that, that possible. But it's a reminder to me that you're going through very difficult things right now. Some of you are struggling to pay the bills. Some of you are struggling to raise your kids. Some of you are struggling in your marriage. Some of you are struggling with, with health issues, whether those be physical or emotional or mental. Some of you are struggling with spiritual things. But we all have a burden that we're bearing but I, I want you to consider that, that on top of everything else that you have going on in your life, in, in your family, in your job, at school, where, wherever you are, whatever your, your role in life is, I want you to consider something that might sound strange for a second, but you're also a philosopher. In addition to everything else that you are, you're also a philosopher. And probably very few of us would say, oh yes, I'm a, I thought if I ask all the philosophers, please stand up, probably nobody would stand up, but you are. You're a philosopher. You might not think of it that way. You might not put things in terms of, well, my philosophy is X, Y, and Z. You, you probably wouldn't say that, but you are. On top of being a dad or a mom or a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or grandparent, in addition to the job that you do, you, you also are a philosopher. Philosophy is about answering big questions. And you have some answers to those questions, whether you've thought through them or you've just made some assumptions about some of the big questions in life, questions like, who am I? What is life all about? How can I really know anything? What's, what's real? What's important? Is there a God? What's good? What's bad? What's right? What's wrong? How should we live our lives? Every single person in this room, everybody watching online, every person with whom you come into contact, everyone is a philosopher. Everyone is attempting to answer those questions, sometimes in a very systematic way, and other times in just a very presumptuous way where we just kind of make some assumptions about what's important, what's life all about, what am I trying to accomplish here? We all have a philosophy. We all have, another word for it is a worldview. And you might think, well, my, my philosophy, my worldview is just a, a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview. Most of us would probably say something along those lines. I just have a Christian philosophy or a Christian worldview. It's interesting when sociologists and, and different researchers begin to sort of probe that question, especially amongst people who claim to be or self-identify as Christians, and they begin to really ask them questions that reveal their worldview, that reveal their philosophy. Even though a lot of us say that we're Christians, our actual philosophy by which we operate our lives is very different than what the scriptures lay out as the Christian worldview or the Christian philosophy. In fact, what is called now America's most popular worldview is what's known as moralistic therapeutic deism. And we've talked about this before. I know those are big words. We'll kind of break that down. 
But this was first identified in 2005 amongst teenagers. They sort of probed their worldview, their, their philosophy, how they operated their lives, what they thought about the big picture questions. And most teenagers in America subscribe to something like this. It's not that they said, I'm a moralistic, therapeutic deist. They, they didn't say that. But upon kind of investigating what they thought about things, this is what the, the researchers dubbed it. And then in 2021, research done across the board, people of all ages, it was deemed that this was the most popular worldview amongst all people in the United States. And it's, it's things like this. Here are some key tenets of this worldview. Number one, God remains relatively uninvolved in most people's life. There's the deism part of it. That there is a God, but that he pretty much lets you just do, you know, just do your thing. Just live your life, enjoy yourself. That there's a God, but he's not really interested in the life that you live or the decisions that you make. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. That, that's really all that God wants. God wants you to be good and nice and fair to each other. That's the moralistic part of it. Number three, the central goal of life is simply to be happy and to feel good about oneself. There's the therapeutic side of it. That, that that's really what God wants for you, and that should be your goal in life, is to just be happy and feel good about who you are. Number four, God really only involves himself in someone's life when he's needed to resolve a problem. So God is there, and you can ask God to come and fix something for you to kind of show up on your behalf. But other than that, he pretty much stays disconnected from what's going on in your life. Number five, good people, regardless of their faith, regardless of their belief, good people, quote unquote, will go to heaven when they die. And this isn't to say that, that maybe you subscribe to all five of those, but maybe, maybe you subscribe to some of those. But this is to say that all of us, all of us have a philosophy. All of us have a worldview. All of us are trying to answer the, the big picture questions some way. Maybe we're answering those questions again in a very spelled out, systematic way. We're being very intentional about how we answer those questions. And sometimes we're just making assumptions about the answers to these questions. But what I want to encourage all of us to do is examine our philosophy, examine our worldview, and say, how might Jesus be challenging my philosophy? How might Jesus be challenging my worldview? In what ways is the gospel, the message of Jesus, incompatible with my beliefs? See, it's really easy for us to look out there and say, all those unbelievers out there, all those people that subscribe to some sort of secular worldview. But it's, it's actually me who needs to take the log out of my eye sometimes. It's you that needs to take the log out of your eyes sometimes and say, how might my worldview in all the things that I'm trying to accomplish, you're being a mom, you're being a dad, you're being a husband, you're being a wife, you're going to school, you're working your job, you're trying to pay your bills, and all the things that you're doing, do we ever take time to stop and say, what assumptions am I making about the really big picture things 
And how might my thinking, my philosophy, my worldview, how might that be inconsistent with and incompatible with the gospel that I say I believe? And and Paul's message in Athens, and Athens is a really unique city, isn't it? In the ancient world, this is the capital of, of thought, the capital of philosophy, the capital of where people come together and discuss ideas. And so Paul comes and brings the message of Jesus to the place where ideas are discussed, the place where ideas are vetted, and and it was revealed to them how their worldview didn't match up with what was true. And that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to examine our worldview and say, is this consistent not just with the gospel, but is this consistent with what is true? Because it is the gospel that is true. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts 17, verse 16. Again, continuing to follow Paul on his missionary journeys. And now he's, he's got some time to kill in the city of Athens. And so he's sort of exploring the city of Athens. It says in verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them, for his companions to catch up with him, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Several, several important things there. One, it says that his spirit was provoked within him. Some translations translate that as distressed. His spirit was distressed within him. Some translate it as deeply troubled. Some even angry. He was deeply upset. His spirit was deeply upset as he explored the city. Now, you and I might think if we could get into a time machine and go to the city of Athens, to go to ancient Athens, to go to the place where democracy was created, to go and see all of this great learning, all of these intelligent people, all of this beautiful architecture. But Paul wasn't impressed. He was distressed. Why? He was distressed because all of their idols. In fact, this term, full of idols, one one commentary said it, it could mean something like under idols, or swamped by idols, or smothered by idols, or submerged in idols. And this bothered him to his core. And so I don't want us to just think about what was going on in Athens. I want us to think about what's going on in me. What's going on in you? What's going on in Collin County? What's going on in America? What's going on in our world, in our time? And I wonder this, if we really saw, if we really saw our own idols, perhaps we would be less impressed and more distressed in our own nation, wouldn't we? If we could see our own idols, if we could see the things that we are really giving our heart to, giving our loyalty to, giving our allegiance to, perhaps we would be less impressed and more distressed right here in our own backyard. Because we have idols too, don't we? And it should trouble us. It should distress us. It should upset us. Look at verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean 
and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Luke highlights a couple of the different kinds of philosophers that were in Athens. One are the the Epicureans, and the Epicureans were materialists. They believed in the material world, and that when you died, you just just became atoms and you ceased to exist. They only believed in the material, and so their philosophy, their worldview, the way they operated was maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain. Whatever is going to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, that's what life is all about because you're going to die and then it's all over, so enjoy yourself. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that there was a God, but the way they used God is very different than the way we use the word God. God, for them, wasn't a personal God. God, for them, was synonymous with things like reason and nature and the cosmos, that that this is what we need to live in harmony with the way things are. And they believe that things are the way they are, and what happens just happens. So just find a way to deal with it and live with it and live in harmony with nature, live in harmony with reason. Now, when they hear Paul speaking about specifically Jesus and the resurrection, they may have thought that those were two new gods, Jesus and resurrection. We hear you talking about Jesus and resurrection, and you've got these new gods, and they call him a babbler. The Greek word there literally means a seed picker, a seed picker, like a bird just kind of going around picking up this and picking up that, just going and picking up new ideas. And they said, this doesn't really match up with any philosophy we've ever heard. This doesn't match up with any religion we're aware of. He must have just been picking up ideas here and picking up ideas there. We call that, now we call that syncretism. Syncretism, where where people just take different ideas from different philosophies and different religions and kind of adopt this amalgamation of of different ideas and say, well, I'm a little bit this, and I'm a little bit that, and I like this idea, and I like that idea. And they looked at him and said, "This this is ridiculous, this babbler, I don't even know what he's talking about. But they took him, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now the Areopagus wasn't just a place, it was a group of people, it was a council of people. The Areopagites would would hear these different philosophies or religions or ideas or thoughts, and maybe they were sort of vetting Paul to say, should we allow this guy to keep running his mouth and talking about whatever it is he's talking about? And so they're asking him questions. They're listening to what he has to say. Now, it's interesting that their accusation against Paul is that he's a seed picker. He's a babbler. he's, He's got some sort of syncretism going on where he's just taking different ideas from here and there. But Luke kind of reveals that's kind of how the Athenians were. That's all they ever did was sit around and listen to new ideas. And so their religion, their philosophy, their process, their thought process became very much one of syncretism. And there's something there for us as well, isn't there? We have the tendency to do that, don't we? 
to take a little bit of new age spirituality, a little bit of Eastern mysticism, a little bit of progressive sexuality, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and just kind of add all of these things to what we believe and just kind of create our own religion by taking new ideas from here and new ideas from there and adopting this and adopting that and creating our own worldview. And that's exactly the kind of thing that was going on in Athens. Just tell us different ideas, and if we like it, we might adopt some of it. We might take a little bit of this from you and a little bit of that from them and adopt whatever suits our fancy. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. With therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, now Paul is being, he, he's reasoning really well with them, and I want us to see that that he's being respectful and he's being kind in the way he's interacting with them, but I also need us to see that he's challenging their philosophy. He's challenging their worldview. He's challenging their religion. He says, I see that you're very religious, and even that word religious could have a couple of different meanings. It could have sort of a positive connotation. I see you're very religious, good job. Or it could have a negative connotation like, I see you're very superstitious. And even in that context, it could have a sort of a double meaning. And perhaps Paul means it kind of both ways. He means it, y'all are pretty superstitious, and maybe they hear it, y'all are very religious. But they are very superstitious, aren't they? So much so that they created altars to unknown gods. And archaeology has discovered that this was a reality throughout the ancient world, that they would not only create altars to gods they knew about or they thought they knew about, but they would also create altars to unknown gods just in case they missed any, to cover all their bases, to make sure they didn't offend any other gods that may or may not be out there. And the irony of that, the irony of trying to make sure, we got to make sure we cover all of our bases, that we don't offend any of the gods. The irony of that is that the one true God, they offended precisely because they were trying to worship all of the other gods. And they offended the one God that really is, the one God that really created them, the one true and living God. Because God, the God, the true God, the living God, is not interested in being one of your gods. He's not even interested in being your favorite God. Sometimes we say, well, an idol is anything that you love more than God. No, an idol is anything you worship. Period. God isn't interested in being your top God. He's not interested in being the God you love the most. He's not interested in being part of your pantheon of gods. He's interested in being your only exclusive God because he is the one true and living God. Now, again, Paul is being very respectful in the way he is presenting his message here to these people who are devoted to all kinds of different ideas and all kinds of different gods, but he wants them to understand that he's challenging them. And in fact, he brings up this idea. He says, look, you, you admit there's something you don't know, right? 
I mean, you're very knowledgeable. I mean, we're in Athens after all. You're very intelligent. You're very educated. But you've got some altars to unknown gods. So you even admit there's something about God that you don't know. And what you don't know, what you're ignorant about, what you admit that you're ignorant about, I want to explain that to you. I want to teach you about what you say you don't know. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, your gods, and you got lots of them, but your gods are so very small. They're, they're so very small, aren't they? they? They live in houses that you built. They, they live in temples made by human hands. And they need you. It's not that you need them. It's that they need you. They depend on you serving their needs. But the God, the one true and living God, he doesn't live in a temple that human beings built. The one true and living God doesn't depend on human beings. He doesn't need to be fed with sacrifices. The one true and living God isn't dependent on human beings. And see, that's the thing about our idols, isn't it? That's the thing about idols in general, is that idols are a way for us to create a God that we control. Idols are a way for us to create a God that we control. We want a means to an end. We want whatever it is that we think that idol will give us, the pleasure that we think that it will bring, the security we think that it'll bring, the safety we think that it will bring. So we create something in which we can place our trust because we want what we think it can provide, but our gods, our idols are so very small. And they are created by us. They are dependent on us. But then we become enslaved to them. Verse 26. And he made, the God, made from one man every nation, every ethnos. Again, we've talked about this extensively this year as we've gone through the book of Acts. Ethnic group. When you read nation in the Bible, it's not about countries like we think of countries, it's about ethnic groups. And Paul says, God made from one man, Adam, every ethnos, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. He says, here's what, you, here's what you're doing. And it's not just the Athenians that are doing it. It's all of us that are doing it. It's every group around the world. This is what we tend to do. We, we come up with ideas, philosophies, religions, worldviews to try to kind of try to find God. Is there a God out there? What's he like? And he says, it's, it's, like, it's like groping around in the dark. It's like trying to find your way, feel your way in the dark to try to find God. And that's what all of you are doing. And he's not, he's not bashing them for doing that. 
He's saying that's, that's what we naturally do. That's what we were created to do. And God knew you were going to do that. Feel your way toward him. And you're doing the best you can. You're, you're trying to figure it out. That's what your neighbors are doing. That's what many of us are doing. We're just trying to figure it out. Feel your way towards God. He says, but chances are, chances are you're not going to find him. It's not because, it's not because he doesn't want to be found like that. It's because that's what we're doing. We're, we're groping in the dark. We're feeling our way in the dark. But he's actually not far from any of us. He created all of us. And he wants all of us to find him. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul believes that the same God who created him created the Greeks and the Romans, the people of every ethnic group. They were all part of one human family. And it's the same God who lives in us and moves. In him we have our very being. He says, as even some of your own poets have said. So he quotes the pagan poets saying, for we are indeed God's offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We are, all, all of us, we are all God's children, God's creation. And we're all trying to find him, and he's the one who gives us breath and life. And he's, he's the reason you're asking these questions He's the reason you've come up with philosophies. He's the reason you've come up with religions. He's the reason you're trying to find the answer to all of these important questions. He is the father of us all. But he says, but if that's true, if we living, breathing human beings are made in God's image, if we are created by him, if we're his offspring, then it can't be the other way around. And that's what your idols are. Your idols are the other way around. Your idols are you making God in your image rather than accepting that you are made in his image. Right? That's what an idol is. It's something we created. Something made by the art and imagination of people. Something you came up with in your head. But you have to understand that the, the true and living God is the one who created you in his image. You don't get to create a God in your image, but that's what all of us try to do. A God that's small, a God that's understandable, a God that's manageable, a God that's able to be manipulated and controlled but that's not the God who is. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked when you were groping around in the dark, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he, uh, he has appointed, and of this he's given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I mean, Paul's being incredibly audacious, isn't he? I mean, here's this Jewish man telling the most learned people in Athens, okay, it's time to be done being ignorant. We've all groped around in the dark for long enough. God's done. Now he's turned on the lights. You, you don't have to grope around in the darkness anymore. Now, now you can see. And now he's calling everyone to repent, to change 
to stop being ignorant, to stop trying to figure it out for yourself, to stop trying to create your own gods in your own image, to stop creating gods that you can manage and control and manipulate, to stop to stop trying to answer the questions with the answers that are in your heart and start listening to him and worshiping him and serving him. And the proof of this is that he's raised Jesus from the dead. And that means that God has appointed a day and a man, a day where he's going to judge everyone and a man by whom he's going to judge everyone the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's raised this, this man from the dead as a foretaste of what he's going to do for everyone because he can't judge everyone unless he raises everyone. Well, that's where he lost a lot of people. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, their dead is plural. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The Stoics believe that when you die, you just become immaterial, and that only the spirit survives after death. And so this idea that God is going to raise bodies, physically, bodily resurrection, that idea was ridiculous to them, and so they laughed at Paul's worldview. Some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. See, some of the people in Athens were, were willing to, to add different points of view to their perspective that they already held, to supplement their perspective with other thoughts, new ideas, new philosophies. But very few people, some, but very few people were willing to totally renovate their worldview. But that's what Jesus calls us to do, isn't it? Jesus isn't a supplement. Jesus isn't an add-on. Jesus isn't an extra. Jesus isn't something that you can just add to the worldview you've already created, to the philosophy you already have to say, oh, I'll take a little bit of Jesus too. I'll take a little bit of this. I'll take a little bit of that. Jesus is interested in being your whole world, your whole life, everything revolving around him. And so the challenge, the challenge for the Athenians and the challenge for us, for us, is to surrender all your idols and your ideologies to Jesus. Every week that we share the bread and the cup, every week that we pray together and sing together, we are being challenged by Jesus to surrender everything to him, all of our idols and all of our ideologies. And it's really easy, I think, for us to say, I don't have any, I don't have any idols. There's a new song that the acapella company just put out called Desiring God. And I love this song. I want to read a few lines from it. It says, everybody worships something. Anything's an idol. Galaxies and iPhones light our path. Ain't it funny when the gadgets that we own end up owning us back? Some people idolize their family. Lovers, friends, and offspring, people, just the thing to make them tick. But when everybody fails you, who is going to empathize, harmonize, realize you're never being satisfied by the world? And then listen to this line. Are we living as captives to the things we're afraid to lose, giving power to creation, hoping something will fill God's shoes.
Paul's challenge to the Athenians. Our challenge today is to surrender all of our idols and all of our ideologies to Jesus. For him to become our entire life. For him to become our worldview. For him to be the one around whom everything else revolves. That's what we're committing to when we're baptized. Dying to ourselves. Being buried with Jesus in baptism. And being raised up to walk a new and different kind of life. And maybe you're ready for that commitment. Or maybe you've already made that commitment. But maybe there's things going on in your life and you need prayers. You need help. You need encouragement. You need the people of God to surround you with love and prayers. Our shepherds would love to meet with you in the prayer room. Or right now, you can come forward. As together we stand and sing this song.